0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, our reading is in Second Chronicles and in chapter 21 this time, Second Chronicles 21. After our scripture reading is concluded, uh, we'll move to the portion where I share some from God's Word in a preaching time, and we'll have uh, any young people that want to go with Mrs. Postiff to uh, do that after our scripture reading, okay? So hang in there. Don't run off just yet. 2 Chronicles chapter 21. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Ezra Ezra, Yahu, Michael, and shephatiah All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of Israel. He may have been the oldest, but he was not the wisest. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Another one, Um, yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Do you hear that, my friends? Forever there will be a lamp in the nation of Israel. It cannot be that it disappears, that nation. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Jehoram went out with his officers and all his chariots with him, and he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of of the chariots. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, that is the day of writing, At that time, Libna revolted against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry and led Judah astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet saying, now you can imagine how this letter is going to go, right? Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father or in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab, and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household, who were better than yourself, behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. After all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease And it happened in the course of time after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of his sickness, so he died in severe pain. And his people made no burning for him like the burning for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Yeah, he... uh, he seemed to figure out the formula for just how to do everything wrong. Almost the perfect formula. Terrible. And um, he had very bad uh, consequences for that. Who does this remind you of as far as his physical condition to the New Testament? Somebody in the New Testament. Judas. Okay, that, that, I could see that likeness. There's another person, another king. <clears throat> Herod. Acts chapter 12, uh, he was, uh, how, how does it say in Acts chapter 12? Kind of eaten by a parasite or something from the inside and he died. Yeah, that was after that episode where the, the crowd said, the voice of a God and not of a man. And he was basking in the glory of all that and not giving honor to God. And uh, God would not share his glory with another. So that's what happened to him. But... Uh, yeah, and it's, it's interesting, to no one's sorrow he departed. I mean, his public approval rating was in, in the dump, and everybody was glad to get rid of him, anybody but this guy. So hopefully the next guy comes along would be better. Young people, you may depart from this room and go with Mrs. Postiff. Soon again we'll have truth trackers, and you guys will have more verses for me. And I'm going to have to have more candy for you, I suppose. (laughs) Keep the dentists in business. Oh, yeah, zucchini. I could do that. I could give you some zucchini. Garden vegetables, wouldn't that count? Let's turn our Bibles to uh, Nahum, please, tonight. We still have a few things we can... look at here in Nahum, chapter 2 and chapter 3. We've uh, introduced the book, we've looked at chapter 1, some of the themes of the book and of the chapter. We look now at chapter 2. The judgment against Nineveh is detailed and and the city is mocked here, which I'm sure didn't make them feel too good. Verse one of chapter two, he who scatters has come up before your face, man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. Imagine these are are exclamations from uh, either the people in the city or the person who is God, who is about to attack them and saying, look, get ready. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. The... the uh, staccato reading of that that I offered is kind of in, you can see it almost in the text. There's a a harried or hurried, frantic nature to this destruction that's happening. Verse 5, he remembers his nobles, they stumble in their walk, they make haste to her walls and the defense is prepared, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. Remember what I said about this, the river and the moat and the walls and how they had that constructed and there was a flood there and the walls in a certain section were collapsed because of that flood and that just allowed the the enemies to walk into Nineveh. Verse 7, It is decreed she shall be led away captive, so uh, she shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold. There's no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She's empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts, the knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked with the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. These are the young warriors. They were pictured as lions. That was their mascot. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. So we have a description here of Nineveh's fall in battle. There's a call to defend the city. Man the fort, watch the road. Those statements that we looked at in verse 1, strengthen the flanks. And uh, the defense, of course, was going to, end in the end, be useless because God was going to make sure that the city was destroyed. And then in verse 2, he as following the pattern, remember we noticed the pattern of jumping back and forth, destruction, restoration of Judah or blessing to Judah, and then back to Nineveh again, back and forth, back and forth. We're following that again. In the destruction of the enemies of Judah is the restoration of Judah, is the uh, blessing to the southern kingdom. So it says the Lord will restore Israel as a nation, from the destruction of Assyria, which had devastated them for years and years. And, of course, you know Assyria is responsible for having taken captive the ten northern tribes and troubling the southern tribes, Sennacherib, Hezekiah, the prophet Isaiah. You remember those portions of your Bible. And so they uh, were uh, great troublers of Israel. And God promises to restore the excellence of Jacob, uh, for the emptiers, there's a little bit of a question, is, is this now switching back to the emptiers have emptied out Assyria and Nineveh, or is it, was um, Judah emptied out? Well, both are true. Uh, you could make a case, perhaps, either way. Verses 3 to 4. Here we have, again, back to like verse 1, a vivid picture of the attack against the city. The action is heavy as I was indicating with the staccato kind of reading of the short phrases, and the, it's colorful as well. You see the, the ideas of lightning, um, the spears being brandished, torches. What is uh, happening is the, the the mechanisms that these guys were using, the swords, the shields, the daggers, were glinting in the sun, or they were colored, Red to intimidate their enemies, or they were colored red because of much blood. Um, they could, you know, have made them with scarlet fabric and gleaming and red shields to be more fierce-looking, or, or to hide the stains of blood. Even, but in any case, it, this is a this is a bloody um, mess here, very bad situation. They uh, hasten to defend the city. Uh, they're going to stumble into their walk, in their walk to the walls. They're in a hurry, verse 5, to try to defend the, the city in the battle. Um, we uh, learn from a, a historian, Greek historian, historian Diodorus Siculus that there were as many as 1,500 defensive towers around the city, Some were as high as 200 feet tall. Excuse me as I get a little moisture here. So this is quite a a fortification, but when a large section of the wall collapsed and fell in, then you have an entry point in and it makes it difficult to defend against the attackers. In verse 6, the gates of the river are opened, so they were assisted by that natural force of flooding water. A system of dams helped to control the flow of water from the Tigris and two smaller rivers in the vicinity. Somehow the gates were opened, and the floodwaters had their effects to dissolve the palace. And it may be that God opened those floodgates with the huge pressure of rainwater and runoff from a storm. So they, uh, that dissolved the palace, causing part of the defensive walls of the city to collapse. Uh, the Net Bible has a very interesting detail here in its note, and uh, I do use from time to time the Net Bible more for its note, notes than for its text. I find this translation is a little bit uh, esoteric, I'll call it, uh, to be nice. It's, sometimes it just seems like it has a, an odd wording or selection for uh, how it translates. But the notes are very valuable. Uh, it gives this interesting detail. Nineveh, and I'm reading a quote from that Bible, Nineveh employed a system of dams and sluice gates to control the waters of the Tabiltu and Kosher rivers, which flowed through the city. However, the Tabiltu often flooded its banks inside the city, undermining palace foundations and weakening other structures. To reduce this flooding, Sennacherib changed the course of the Tabiltu inside the city. Outside the city, he dammed up the kosher and created a reservoir regulating the flow of water into the city through an elaborate system of double sluice gates. Now, I personally can't picture what sluice gates look like. Maybe you know more about... Um, hydrodynamics uh, or whatever, and management of water. But in any case, um, let me see here. I'm going to get past the uh, footnotes here. According to classical tradition, Diodorus and Xenophon, just before Nineveh fell, a succession of very high rainfalls deluged the area. The Kosha River swelled and the reservoir was breached. The waters rushed through the overloaded canal system, breaking a hole 20 stades, about 2.3 miles wide in the city wall, and flooding the city. When the waters receded, the Babylonians stormed into Nineveh and conquered the city, according to Diodorus Siculus, Bibliotheca Historica, and Xenophon. This scenario seems to be corroborated by the archaeological evidence, A.T. Olmsted, History of Assyria, and it gives a page number there for that. So, very interesting, but if you can think of the disaster of 2.3 miles of wall just collapsing down, it's amazing how that would work but if you look at if you look at the forces of nature which are the forces of God in uh, under his authority they are so much more vast than human uh, you know ants who are building their little anthills in in the world i mean we were just seeing on uh, friday evening the eruption of a volcano near Reykjavik in Iceland. You can watch the live stream of that if you want. I don't know where it's at, but somewhere on YouTube. Loud and constant lava coming up. It was just a few weeks ago, a crack in the ground. And now it's building a mountain. Now, it's not a huge mountain yet, but it just keeps on going and going after a long succession of volcanic activity in that area. And so, um, you know. You think you have an impregnable situation, God can send a hurricane or whatever he wants and just just wipe it down to the ground. Um, uh, About the palace melting, the Net Bible goes on regarding this verb. It is sometimes used of material objects being softened or eroded by water. Have you ever seen a landslide? Do You know what happens in a landslide? The dirt becomes like a liquid. It's not a liquid, but it flows like a liquid flows. And so that's kind of this idea. Nahum pictures the riverbanks inside Nineveh overflowing in a torrent, crashing into the royal palace, and eroding its limestone slab foundations. You know, can you imagine your foundations are made of uh, water soluble materials? Ouch. Ironically, a few decades earlier, Sennacherib engaged in a program of flood control because of the Tabiltu River often flooded inside the Nineveh and undermined the palace foundations. Sennacherib also had to strengthen the foundations of the palace with, quote, mighty slabs of limestone so that its foundation would not be weakened by the flood of high water. Uh, At the time of the fall of Nineveh, the palace of Ashurbanipal was located on the edge of the sharpest bend in the Kosher River as it flowed through the city, and when the Kosher overflowed its banks, the palace foundation was weakened, and so that's what happened there. We return to the text, verses 7 through Um, 8. God's ultimate plan for Nineveh was to be led away captive just like she led thousands of captives from their homelands you know if you live by the sword you die by the sword if you live by this kind of mechanism uh, oftentimes uh, god uses that very technique on you that you have used on others to get you and so uh, the part uh, and so they were you know leading people away from their own homelands they would also be led away and destroyed the part about Nineveh being like a pool of water uh, let's see, that is in uh, 8, the first part of 8, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, refers to the fact that it was a great city that provided for its inhabitants. We don't think about this too much today, but if you have no water, you have no life. You have to go somewhere to find, to find it. Um, how would you like to be up in uh, uh, maybe the northern suburbs of Detroit where they had that water main break? and you're boiling water in like 10 communities or something like that. This was a 10-foot diameter water main. That's, I mean, from the floor to here is eight feet. Two more feet, that's how big this water main is, and it had a leak in it, it has a leak in it, and it's gonna take them a couple weeks to repair. No water, no life, you know, you, it makes things much more inconvenient. So if you have a, a pool of water, it's like when the Lord says, uh, you know, He leads me beside green pastures, makes me to lie beside still waters. You have everything's provided for you if you're a sheep. You have grass, you have water. What else could you need, right? A little shelter maybe. You have a, a shepherd caring for you. That's all that you need. So it provided for its inhabitants, even if the surrounding country was desolate. Now, instead of looking forward to coming to it and living in it, people fled for their lives. People yelled for them to stop. You know, hey, don't leave. They said, hey, see you later. I'm out of here. They left. So, verses 9 and 10. We change scene again. Uh, This time to the attackers who are taking the spoils without measure from the city and leaving it empty and terrified. So, the attackers come those ones that were brandishing their swords and shields and the flashing red and all that. They were taking the spoil, silver, gold, all the treasure, wealth, every desirable prize. They were just looting the whole place. Um, And the people who were observing this and being attacked, their hearts were melting. Verse 10 says their knees were shaking. You see, now you see how tough they are when they're the ones under attack and they haven't been accustomed to this kind of thing before, you see their citizens, uh, how they are there in the city. Pain, pale facial color, the terror is total in the lives of these people. Now we come to uh, verses 11 to 13 where we have mockery and a declaration of judgment against Nineveh. So, just to, to remind ourselves, we were looking at the description of Nineveh's fall and the battle before. Now we're looking at mockery and declaration of judgment against Nineveh. Uh, in verse number 11, where is the dwelling of the lions? You know, where are you now, all you mighty lions? You hear the tone of voice, the mocking, the... Uh, declaration that they are nowhere, by, by means of this question, they are nowhere to be found. You're so strong, you think, are you? Well, we'll see about that. The, sin of, the symbol of the Ninevite soldier was a lion. The king of Assyria was pictured as a man who hunted and killed lions. Like the king of the beasts, the Assyrians were supposed to be fearless and took enough prey for their family, the city of Nineveh, the nation was on top of the food chain, at least for a while. The point of Nahum is a taunting statement. Where are you now, big boy? You're finished. They're reduced, or you're reduced to captivity and fleeing away. No more strong lion. They're running away with their tails between their legs. That's more of a dog kind of illustration, but you get the point. <clears throat> In verse 13, God simply says that he is against the nation of Assyria. These are the scariest words that any nation can face. Um, In uh, verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Your name shall be perpetuated no longer out of the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. And then he says, I am against you. Our own nation should take heed to these words. It is clear that God will turn his face entirely against our own nation in the not-too-distant future if he's not done so already. Likewise, anyone who knows this judgment is against them ought to be in fear for their souls. Don't fear him who can merely kill the body. Fear him, fear him who can kill the body and put the soul in hell. Hmm. He goes on, that Nahum does, to say chariots will be burned, totally destroyed. Assyria did this to their own enemies. The sword will kill the young men uh, of Nineveh. The prey will be cut off. Uh, it's not exactly clear to me that it could be the victims of Assyria, and the victims would not seem to be cut off in the sense of being killed unless it means that God will cut off the supply of prey so that they would not be sustained any further in their evil ways. That's in verse number uh, 12. Um, was that 12? Oh, pray, pray, uh, verse 12, the, the victims of Assyria, the tore in pieces, enough for the cubs, killed for the lioness, uh, filled the caves with prey. And then I will cut off your prey from the earth. So, it cut off sometimes in the Old Testament means killed. But here it seems to be like you know you have this flow of prey coming in. That's going to be cut off. You're not going to have any more sustenance. Uh, the flow is going to stop. The economy is going to crash because of this. You won't have the kind of ease that you had before. Anyway, there's a little bit of a question there, but bear with me on that one. Uh, I call them their public relations people. Their messengers will be silenced. They will be heard no more. That's the very end of chapter 2. No more propaganda, no more boasting over their enemies now. And this transitions right into chapter 3, which is just a continuation, chapter divisions being somewhat artificial, and God continues. The sins of Nineveh and their consequences are detailed. So we'll try to go ahead and uh, just finish this in the time we have remaining here. This evening, we've spent enough time in Nahum already, but uh, the chapter alternates again between charges of various sins and punishments for those sins. So we get the sins of Nineveh and Assyria. Woe to the bloody city. It's full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There's a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses, because of the multitude of the harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorcery, uh, sorceries. Again, verse 5, behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, those most fearful of words that you might hear. So verse 1 declares a woe on the bloody city. It's like the word alas. It's used in a funeral setting. It's used like a, a, a lament over the dead. It's used as a cry by the prophets of a grievous, threatening woe. The city is charged with bloodshed. it shed the blood of many other peoples and nations, and besides that's full of lies and robberies and never-ending supply of prey that is victims of its violence. Um, Verse 4, more charges against the city. They have a multitude of harlotries the plural here probably indicates not just uh, many prostitutes in the city, but also mostly idolatry, which is spoken of in Scripture as spiritual harlotry in the nation of Israel, since the nation was supposed to belong exclusively to God the Father, right? You too are supposed to exclusively belong to God, not to the world. <clears throat> friendship with the world, that's a little awkward if one has a relationship with God, just like a friendship with another person of the opposite sex would be uh, awkward for a married couple to uh, experience the uh, kind of friendship that we are talking about here. As a, as a Gentile city, this concept does not apply directly to Nineveh, uh, but all peoples and cities owe their existence to God and should not depart from him. So what I, when, I, when I said that, what I meant was Israel was, you know, married to God. The other Gentile nations were not specifically so connected to God, but they owed him their allegiance, just like we do to our God, to the same one and same God in this Bible. Additionally, the city is the mistress of sorceries, which I think means that she was participating in the occult, the dark arts, if you will. Um, it was satanic. Her evil work affected families and entire nations. I'm afraid there are a lot of people in high places in our own nation that are involved in sorcery type of activity, and thus they are so vile, so evil, so dark, so abandoned of conscience that they don't have any care for the things of God. They've rejected Him entirely. They want just pure pleasure, and uh, they will get their, perhaps get their wish in this life, but they will get their comeuppance in the next by, by certainty. Uh, look at verses 8 to 10. I know I'm jumping a little bit, and I'm trying to collect the charges of sin together. Uh, the Bible says, Are you better than no Ammon that was situated by the river? Or Thebes, the name of the city. That had waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put in Lubim were your helpers; yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. Who was it that destroyed Thebes? Assyria. God says, "Are you better than them? Look at their natural defenses." You walked through those, and thus someone will walk through yours. Um, terrible, terrible note, uh, notes here about how they treated these people. They dashed their children to pieces. Nineveh was neither morally nor strategically better or more powerful than that city of Thebes. The Nile River and water canals were its defensive system, She was allied with Ethiopia and Egypt, um, put in Lubim or Libya in that general area. Even with all that, no Ammon or Thebes was carried away into captivity. The influential men men were imprisoned. Nineveh should remember all about this because under Ashurbanipal, she was responsible for the demise of that city. She lived by the sword and thus soon would die by the sword. So what are the consequences? Well, the vivid uh, imagery of the attack on the city is in verses 2 and 3. Imagine going through your neighborhood, the noise of the whip, the noise of rattling wheels, galloping horses, clattering chariots, or today we would think of, you know, mortars, grenades, gunfire, troops tramping through your neighborhood, getting control of all homes, all the people, taking it over. A horde of foreign invaders would come with their chariots, their whips, their wheels, their galloping horses, their spears and their swords. A vast number of casualties would seem countless. There would be so many bodies. There was no time for them to be counted or identified. They would have to be just piled into mass graves. Uh, Corpses were everywhere, would be everywhere, according to the prophecy, and they were indeed in the fulfillment uh, thus how war goes. Verses 5 to 7, then, dropping down there, details God's response to their harlotries. Uh, he says, I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. This is a, a picturesque way of showing that they would be exposed. Uh, they'd be open to all to come and steal all of their stuff and kill them all, humiliated and exposed to the world to see. Furthermore, God would cover the city in filth. Um, I will uh, cast abominable filth upon you like excrement so that people would be shocked to see its demise from the height of beauty and prominence to the depths of terrible defilement. No one, however, would be uh, sorrowful for her. Like the king that we read about, uh, they're going to be like, oh, glad they're done for uh, we don't need them around anymore. They just were m- making trouble for everybody. Nobody would comfort them. Uh, no one will bemoan her. Who shall seek comforters? Uh, or where shall I seek comforters for you? Not, not at all. Now, after the th- comparison to thieves, God returns to the judgment theme of the chapter. You also will be drunk, he says in verse 11. You'll be hidden. You'll seek refuge from the enemy. I think the drunkenness is... a drunkenness because they're drinking of the cup of the wine of the wrath of God, not because they're drinking alcoholic beverage. They're going to be drunk on that uh, wrath of God, and that will control them, that will influence them, and so on. Um, You will suffer the same as Thebes did. Uh, The fortifications uh, will be like a fig tree, Let's, uh, let's find that. Uh, verse uh, 12, all your strongholds are like fig trees with ripened figs. This is such a neat picture. You stand under the tree and you shake it, and you open your mouth and the figs just fall in. You're like, ah, oh, what a nice snack. You don't have to pick them. You don't have to climb the tree. They're just ripe. You just shake the tree. They come down. We have a tree that's sort of like that at our place. It's too big to do that really well with, but it's a... Um, Oh, man, why am I not thinking of a mulberry tree? And uh, when the mulberries are ripe, you you can lay a sheet out on the ground and and grab the branches and shake them, and they all fall down onto the sheet on the ground. Now, there's some unripened ones that fall, and there's some bugs that come with that process too. But uh, the fig tree, the picture of the fig tree is, it's going to be so easy to eat this city. It's just going to be so easy to defeat it because they will be as, you know, we would say the fortresses of Nineveh will be as easy as pie to overcome, you know, and pie is pretty easy and enjoyable to eat. The soldiers, like the great lions, the warriors will be weak like women. Verse 13, take no offense, ladies, please, generally. uh, Women are physically weaker than men. It's no offense to call a woman a woman, but it is an offense to call a man a woman. Yeah, I hear an amen out there. Yeah, women are women. But when you call a man a woman, you know, that's, that's them as fighting words, you know, it used to be. Now everybody's all mixed up about this matter. But uh, that's what it means. They're weak. They're insulted. Uh, they're unable to defend the city. Um, they were mocking God and, and through Nahum was mocking the city. The gates of the city, instead of being shut securely, would be wide open for the enemies. You know, it's like your front door. You didn't find water coming out of your front door, by the way, from this morning. No? Okay. Uh, Bad feeling, I'm sure. I haven't had this. I hope never to, but to walk, to go home and find your front door kicked in. You're like, uh-oh, what's been going on here? Well, these guys, their gates are open. Open. Uh, they're open for your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. They'll just be totally, completely ineffective. Um, so we have all this imagery of, of openness to destruction, uh, vivid imagery. Draw your water for the siege, fortify your strongholds, go into the clay and tread the mortar. You know, in other words, tr- trying to make quick extra bricks. You know, let's get some more fortifications built here. There will, there the fire will devour you and the sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. They'll be completely consumed, not able to stand before the coming disaster. Um, They'll be uh, likened in 16 and 17 to locusts. The leaders of the nation will be likened to locusts who are ready to fly away to their next place. You've seen bugs in the morning when it's cool and they're kind of sluggish. But then when the the warm sun beats down and warms them up, then they they take off and go wherever they're gonna go. That's what we're looking at here. Um, Make yourself many. Uh, You've multiplied your merchants. The locusts uh, plunder and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away and the place where they are is not known. So they abandon ship and left everybody else to their own devices. They had a huge number of merchants indicating the commercialization of the city, uh, and that just means more inventory for the plunderers to spoil for themselves. Finally, in, uh, in 18 and 19, your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria, your nobles rest in the dust, your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing, your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. So sleeping shepherds, nobles resting in the dust, what does that mean? They're dead. They're they're dead. They're scattered about. No one will be able to get them together again. The destructive blow is permanent. Assyria will not again rise as a nation, and no one will be sad about that. <clears throat> when I wrote these notes originally some years ago and studying this, I was struck by how similar the 2015 ISIS offensive in Iraq was, which advanced rapidly since the earlier, uh, earlier in June of 2014. This looked like the Assyrians and the Babylonians after them. Their religion was different, but their brutal tactics were the same. And if, if you have a memory of those events when they were current, you Just remember how they swept through ISIS, just swept through destruction, destroying people, killing, uh, destroying cultural sites, historical sites, libraries, burning things, just uh, very bad. Um, But God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7 says that what someone sows, they will certainly eventually also reap. Whether soon in this life or later in judgment, the results will make clear what kind of seed was planted The Ninevites planted a terrible crop with their wickedness and received a commensurate harvest from the Lord. Those who live by the sword, as we said before, will die by it as well. Matthew 26, 52 gives us that proverbial statement. The specific situation of Nineveh offers the general principle that God judges wickedness. Now remember, he gave mercy to them 100 years earlier with Jonah. He sent them a message of destruction That was his message and way of actually communicating to them mercy. They believed it. They turned away from their wickedness for a time, and God relented of the disaster. I'm sure it didn't mean that the city suddenly became, you know, church services 24-7, okay? We're not that naive. But they did amend their ways to some extent in a very uh, notable fashion. Those who conspire against God, God has a plan for them too. Those who oppose God, he will oppose them. Those who do damage to God's people will suffer damage themselves. As they increase their sin, they heap up for themselves increased judgment. And I I hesitate to say, but find it necessary to say, that our own nation, the United States, is doing that just now. Some sins are practiced by the minority, but there are those who applaud and support those sins who are many more than the minority. And you can read the entire passage of Romans 1 and see the development of a nation uh, you know, into idolatry and, and paganism and sexual immorality and all of those things, and you see that being repeated. Unfortunately, again, when are we going to learn? <laughs> We're never going to learn until Christ returns, until all are saved uh, and uh, we go to heaven and, and there are no, there's no more sin there. We believe God is righteous. We know he's righteous. We see that he expresses judgment in very harsh and even mocking terms, which might offend our modern sensibilities. But this shows that righteousness is not incompatible with severe judgment against sinners, and we see that in both Testaments. You know, you don't want to just look at the Old Testament and say, well, that's a book of of a wrathful God, and the New Testament is a God of love. I mean, go to the end of John chapter 3. If you don't believe... The wrath of God abides upon you. doesn't sound like a God of love, exclusively love, there in the New Testament. We have one God who is throughout the whole of Scripture. God's grace is displayed even in this book, even though it's filled with judgment. If you look at like three, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. Um, it tells us in seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. One fifteen, and, and uh, it says, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace. Uh, chapter 2, verse number 2, The Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. And so God is, is a gracious God, and he, he uh, helps his people and restores them. What God prophesied through Nahum did indeed happen. In 612 B.C., the kingdom of Assyria was destroyed. God's word was vindicated around 40 years after it was written by Nahum. God's promises always come to pass, even for good or for calamity. And so we can bank on that. With the track record that God's word has, predicting, coming to pass, predicting, coming to pass, when there are things that are predicted in the New Testament and still still some in the Old that haven't yet come to pass, what do you think is going to happen? They will happen. It just takes time. We're not as patient and long-range in in our view as God is, but, but He is, and He will make sure those things come to pass. So let's thank Him for that tonight. Father, we are grateful to You for writing in Your Word, telling Your prophets the things that You're about to do, and then doing those things. And for those that have yet to be fulfilled, Lord, we're assured that with a good track record, a perfect track record, the word of God will indeed come to pass every last bit of it. And so I pray that you'd help us to take that seriously, uh, that that piece of evidence would be convincing to us, that it would catch us up short if we think we can just uh, treat this like some religious book that's just made up or whatever but we would really take serious uh, note of the, of the facts of prophecy and history that it uh, brings to our attention. Lord, today we love you and we thank you for allowing us to look at your word, even this difficult portion. Help us to be thankful to you tonight, to be uh, thankful for and to one another. Help our time of fellowship here to be sweet and our going home to be safe and our rest to be thorough this evening that we'd be ready for tomorrow's things, whatever those may be. But as we do that, help us not to worry about tomorrow just to get through the rest of the day. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.